So tonight we continue 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 to 18. Remember first, Paul is talking to Timothy to encourage him as a young pastor and all the difficulties that will come from that. If anyone has any doubts about that, I'm sure our pastors would be happy to do a sidebar and explain and talk about all those difficulties that they have. <clears throat> of course, this book does have application for all of us as believers too. Last week in verse 1 to 7, Paul spoke about Timothy's faith, his family lineage, and that Timothy was to fan into flame the gift of God. We don't know what that gift was. And that God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We start tonight with the word therefore, which is meant to incorporate or bring in or add emphasis to all of what Paul has just said. So I'll read 8 to 18. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. <clears throat> but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So Paul starts in verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So why was Paul jailed? Well, we know he spoke the Bible boldly, and they didn't like it. Interestingly, I can't find anywhere in the New Testament where Paul asked or prayed for others to ask the Lord that he would be released from jail. He's in jail awaiting death, and he doesn't pray to be released. As a Christian, there's something more important to him than even his own freedom or his life. He cares more that his life would be lived for the glory of God, no matter what his circumstances are, rather than his own comfort and safety. In Colossians 4, Paul writes from prison and says, Pray also for us to be released. No, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Philippians 1, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has been become known throughout the whole imperial guard 
and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much bolder to speak the word without fear. That's for us also. Paul knew his situation was by the Lord's hand. And think about it. The whole imperial guard knew who he was and why he was there and heard his message. And I think it might be safe to say that some of them might have been saved. Even the brothers outside, Paul says, were encouraged by his imprisonment. His boldness in prison was cause for them on the outside to be bold. If Paul can do it in prison, surely we can do this on the outside. Paul can say this because no matter what affliction the Lord sent him, he was always kingdom-focused, content, and assured of his final resting place. In his book, The Good Which Comes Out of the Evil of Affliction, Puritan Nathaniel Vincent says this about affliction and assurance. Once a Christian has attained a sense and assurance of the favor of God, how prepared he is for whatever might happen to him. He can lie down easily on a sickbed because his God makes his bed for him. And the presence of his God makes him fearless in the gloomy valley of the shadow of death. Paul echoes this in Acts 21 where he says, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. All of this, Paul says, we are to share in. Some to a greater degree, some to a lesser degree. Are we prepared for that? I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but this is what we signed up for when we gave our lives over to the Lord. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. Those are not just song lyrics that we sing on a Sunday. It is a giving of our life to be used by God however he sees fit. And we can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Something else I think is very important here that we don't miss here in verse 8 as well in other verses like Ephesians 3, Paul calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He doesn't say he's a prisoner of the Roman government, even though he was. In the Greek, this word prisoner can also mean a binding or one who is bound. In Romans 1, Paul says he is a servant or bondservant of Christ Jesus. All of this means that he was willingly self-committed to permanent service to the Lord. Not only if it agreed with his desires and whatever his hopes were, but whatever the circumstances were for his life. Paul knew his life was not his own anymore and neither are ours. We gave up that right when we gave our lives to Jesus. In Ephesians 6, Paul writes from jail, again, does not ask to be released. He says, pray for me that words may be given to me to open my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Paul doesn't rue his situation. In fact, the opposite is true. He was resigned that whatever, wherever, and however God wanted to use him, he would go forth willingly and with joy. Are we prepared to do the same? 
to give even our very lives for the kingdom if absolutely necessary? Under the cost of discipleship in Luke 14, Jesus says we must first count the cost of following him. That means we must earnestly ask ourselves, how much am I willing to lose for the sake of his glory? Jesus then adds this, whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, this doesn't mean we have to go out and get rid of everything we have. But it does mean that we have to be willing to leave everything behind to follow him. There can be no more self-rule or hands-off. This is mine. Matthew 5, Jesus says, If someone sues you to take your tunic, which was an undergarment, give them your cloak or your coat as well. If someone makes you go one mile, how many are we supposed to go? Two miles. The point here is that we are supposed to go beyond what is expected of us. Bless those who persecute you. Do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Is the call for the Christian. Some Christians are under the false assumption that they can give their lives to Jesus and then live however they want, even contrary to what the Bible says. They say they believe God's word until something touches them or their family. Then acting along the line of God's word can sometimes go right out the window. But you don't know what they said or did to me. If you hurt me or my family, I'm coming after you. I'd rather beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. These are just some of the many excuses people can use to justify their actions. But they are all wrong. There are no asterisks in the Bible, meaning we follow God's word only so well as life goes good and until trials hit us personally. When we said yes to Christ, we said yes to whatever his word says. We have agreed to let his word rule over us and guide our lives. Again, this is only possible by the power of God. Famous John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he was in prison for his faith once for years. I think it was 12 years. While he was in prison, he wrote many Christian books and other writings. When he was again in prison for six months, instead of seeing this as a tragedy, he reportedly said this, I have been away from writing for too long. Maybe this is not so much a prison sentence as an office from which I can reach the world with the message of Christ. Paul is saying exactly that because he understood God's sovereignty and his plan. He knew that everything that happened to him was part of God's divine will, and so he could accept it joyfully. Like Paul, the Bible is clear, we will suffer for the sake of the kingdom. Acts 14, Paul said, it is only through many tribulations that we will enter the kingdom. Hands up for those who want many tribulations. There's no hands. 2 Timothy 3, we will be persecuted. Luke 12, Christians may even be arrested. Jesus says, don't be anxious about what to say or do when that happens, when they bring you before the authorities. The Holy Spirit will tell us what we ought to say. Hebrews 10, we heard this a couple weeks ago. 
Some may have to endure hard struggles and suffering. Again, hands up for anybody that wants that. No hands up. Good. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and some with the plundering of their property. Can't imagine what that was like. But do you remember their response? They accepted it joyfully. How is that possible? Well, we cannot cling, hope, trust, or rely in or on the things of this world. The only thing we can cling, hope, trust, and rely in or on is Jesus. Again, we must remember the sovereignty of God in all things, in life and death. God says, I kill, I make alive. He uses means for that, but he alone controls those. Wars, storms, sickness, all these big things, even the small things like the roll of every dice. God is in complete control. Whatever touches our lives, no matter how severe, nor for how long, nothing can touch us unless God says, touch. So there are two paths we can take when this happens, because we're all going to suffer affliction or trials. We can shake our fist at God and curse him, like Job's wife asked him to do. Or even if we don't understand why it's happening, which is probably a lot of the times, we can accept it and know that it comes from the hand of a loving father who loves his child. Or as it says in Psalm 119.71, it was good that I was afflicted. When we understand that God is in complete control, there is no chaos and disorder in this world. From a human perspective, there is, sure, we turn on the news and it looks like the world is in chaos. But that's a human perspective. God rules everything. There is no disorder or chaos from a godly perspective. Everything is going exactly according to his plan. When we understand this, it gives us peace. It should give us peace and comfort. We don't have to like what's going on, but there's a peace and comfort that there is no disorder or chaos in the world. God is ruling it all. And we don't have to understand it all. We can't understand most of it. But that God is working it all for his good, and that's to give us comfort and peace. Puritan William Gurnall lived in the 1600s, wrote a great book, Christian in Complete Armor. Says this about trials and afflictions and those that would try to hurt us. He says, Christian, look not at the jailer that whips thee. Maybe he is cruel. But read the warrant and see who wrote it. And at the bottom, we shall see our Father's hand. What he's saying is, God is in complete control. Paul understands this, and this is why he could be content in all situations, because all of his situations were from the hand of God to bring glory to God. He echoes this in 2 Corinthians 1, where he says he shared abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ, he could share abundantly in comfort. He then adds that he was so utterly burdened, his beyond his strength that he despaired of life itself, thinking he had received the sentence of death. I think a lot of people can relate to that. Utterly burdened beyond strength, despaired of life itself. Paul then says and acknowledges that all that that happened to him 
was to make him rely not on himself, but to rely on God. So how can any Christian stand strong? Well, Ezekiel 13 talks of the strong walls that we need built up, and that is our faith, which comes from strong preaching like we have here at Green Tree. It will be applied to us by the Holy Spirit as we sit and listen, but this teaching will do us no good we just sit and listen and do nothing and don't ask the Lord to work or believe it. It will do us no good unless we believe it, embrace it, and seek to live out its truths and promises. As we do this, the Holy Spirit will apply these truths, solidify them in our hearts and our minds and our life to stand strong and courageous, bold and zealous. In Daniel 10, Daniel has this vision that left him without any strength. I know some people can relate to that. A heavenly being appeared and touched and strengthened Daniel, we're told. He then said to Daniel, oh man, greatly loved. Think that's just for Daniel? That's for all of us, God's children. He says, oh, my child, greatly loved when we are in trials and afflictions. This being says to Daniel, fear not which is the call for all of us. Peace be with you, he says to him. Be strong and of good courage. Those words are for us in everything we face, friends. And as he spoke to Daniel, he was strengthened, the text says. This is the picture of our strength coming from God through the word, through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. If we don't seek our strength from God, then when the storms come, and they will come, we will be tossed to and fro, like Paul says in Ephesians 4. The verse 9 to 10, <clears throat> who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Paul tells us what type of life we are to live. It is a holy calling. This encompasses all aspects of our life, not just church on Sunday or fellowship or religious things. Every aspect of our life is supposed to be modeled this way. It means when we drive our car, when we go to the shopping center, when we're at work, when the person calls you and tells you your uh, warranty needs to be renewed. <laughs> All those things, when people get on our nerves, we are supposed to live holy lives. The Bible has many verses on this, just a couple. First Peter 1, be holy in all your conduct, for God is holy. Cleanse yourself from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion, as 2 Corinthians 7. First Timothy, we heard last semester, as for you, O man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit is this possible. Paul immediately attaches that it is not because of our works. And we heard a couple Sundays ago when Pastor Eric mentioned Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, that it's not about our works. Our faith is only Jesus. It is never Jesus and the Roman Catholic Church would agree about Jesus, but they would add in works as part of our salvation. 
That is Jesus and. Salvation by works is even only a small bit can only bring glory to man and is a mindset that says Jesus alone is not enough. They would also believe in the authority of God's word but are in error because they add in traditions of the church as having the same authority as the Bible. Got this quote at a Sovereign Grace conference a couple years ago. What we do does not determine who we are. So our works can never make us saved or determine who we are. Who we are determines what we do. As we are, we are born again believers in Christ, what we, who we are determines how we live our life. We do good works because of who we are, not to get to that point. This helps, I think, to understand the passages in James 2, where he says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Sometimes that can be a confusing verse, uh, but the context is key there. Who is James talking to? Why is he talking to him? And what is the reason for him saying that? It's because they were people who said they were believers, but didn't have any fruit in their lives. And so our faith is shown to be false if we profess to be believers, but have no fruit. Paul then says this holy calling was part of his, God's purpose for us before the ages began. Psalm 139, 16 gives us figurative language of a book and that in this book, all of our days were already written down. This means that all born-again believers were chosen, predestined, and ordained by God in eternity past, before time began, through Christ, to this holy calling which is evidenced now by a life of good works, which we live out in time. This all starts with the work of God, but we have a responsibility in our faith and our holy calling. This takes time and effort. So think of an athlete or a musician or an artist who is gifted in their craft. Their ability comes first and foremost from God. But they got to where they are by honing their craft and abilities over time through a diligent pursuit of it. They were dedicated, purposeful, and diligent in reaching their goal. This shows that there is a twofold process involved. God gives the gift, but there is work involved in maturing that gift. If they don't give glory to God, thanks and praise to him for this gift, they are just like the world who instead thinks that it's all of themselves and who rejoice in the gift, but they neglect the giver of the gift. God made us into a new creation and gives us our faith, but there is action on our part to get to where God calls us to be. This action is the means of grace God has given us. Bible study, memorization, seriousness to the sacraments, commitment and service to the church and its people. As we commit ourselves to these, pursue and strive after these with the help of the Holy Spirit, this maturity, boldness, zealousness, confidence, assurance, and righteous living can be ours. If we don't believe that's possible, that is doubt and unbelief in God's word. It says, no, God, that's not true. And that is a sin. And that needs to be confessed and repented of. We make much of God, not only when we regularly give him his due and stand in awe and reverence 
of who he is and what he's done in our lives, but also when we manifest the promises of his word in our lives by becoming the people he calls us to be. Paul then says, Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He's making a contrast between spiritual death and spiritual life that comes only through faith in the gospel. We know this, but I think Paul might be saying even more than that. It's not just spiritual life that the gospel brings. It also brings a proper understanding of true physical life itself. We have been reconciled with God, and we can now live the lives that we were meant to be. Whether it's our work with our hands or our minds or our play, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we can do all to the glory of God. Before being saved, and we probably didn't even know this at the time, we thought we were alive and living our life to the fullest at times. We thought we knew the meaning of life, what happiness was, and what was most important to pursue. That wasn't life, though. That was death. We were chained to our sin, enemies of God, children of wrath, and yet we thought all was good and dandy, didn't we? Christ freed us from that bondage and changed us so we can now know the true meaning of life. We are reunited with our king, one with him, and can glorify him all the days of our lives. Even in the mundane day-to-day-to-day things. There's nothing better than that, friends, and no better way to live our lives. Instead of death, which we all deserve, Paul says we don't only have life, but we now have immortality. This word in the Greek can also mean incorruptibility or lacking the ability to decay. It's the same word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says our bodies will put on the imperishable. It is not, it is not the same word Paul uses in 1 Timothy 6, which the ESV also translates as immortality, referring to God having immortality and dwelling in unapproachable light. This is why it's important to look up words in the Bible when we're studying God's word so we don't mix it up. Because although in a sense, through Christ, we do have immortality and eternity forward, we don't want to confuse ourselves because only God is immortal. If we do that, we would become like Mormons who actually believe they can become gods when they die. So it's important to look up words sometimes because we can say, well, God's immortal, I'm immortal, I must be like God. No, that's not what it's saying. All this is the promise, hope, and truth that should be at the forefront of how we live our lives. As we set these promises before us, as our aim, goal, and expectation of living, God will do amazing things in our lives. How can we know this? God just doesn't give us words to live by or things to strive for independent of himself. Like, good luck, have a nice day, hope you get there. God has annexed or joined himself to the fulfillment of these promises and truths. That's because his glory, his name, his very being and character stands at the center of what he has promised. God is immutable. He cannot change. He cannot say one thing in his word and then do another. 
for he would be a liar and hence not God. This is why we can pray. Have you not said, Lord, whatever trial we're under? Have you not said that no temptation will seize me, God? Have you not said that you will comfort me and guide me, God? Have you not said that all the things that we can put in our minds and think to pray about in that situation? Have you not said, God, God loves when you pray his word back to him. That's why he's given it to us. God, you have said, I hold your word up to you. He loves that. He's not afraid of hearing that prayer. He wants us to do that. And that's why we can pray those prayers with expectation. He's waiting to answer. Verse 11 to 12, Paul says that he suffers because of his work as a preacher, apostle, and teacher. Probably not what anybody wants to hear who's considered entering the ministry. So preaching the gospel landed Paul in jail. What are the ramifications for pastors or for us as his people, God's people, if the government was to one day say preaching or attending church was illegal? So COVID was one thing. We weathered that storm. We knew it was a temporary thing. But if the government said you can no longer preach God's word or you can no longer attend a church, what are the ramifications for us? Well, some would say, I guess we can go back to the way of doing it in COVID and the pastors can go underground. They can preach the word online. We can sit in our comfy pajamas and watch church online. Now, if the government ever said something like that, we would have to defy the government and obey God's word. That's what the Bible says to do. Oh, what if I got arrested? That wouldn't be good. We would have to defy what the government says and obey God's word. What if I got arrested a couple times and I ended up going to jail? We would have to defy the government and obey God's word. What if, you know, I had a really good job and I got arrested, put in jail, and now I don't have a job anymore. Is that really what God wants for me? We would have to defy the government and do what God's word says. These are choices that hopefully we don't have to make someday. But we see the way things are going in the world. Paul then adds emphatically, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Lest anyone think what happened to Paul was an embarrassment or hindrance to the gospel, he boldly proclaims, I am not ashamed. We read this in Romans 1.16 also. These words are not just for him, but they are for us also. When fill in the blank comes, and it will come, which of the two paths I spoke of earlier will we choose? Are we all in for Christ only so long as things go mostly well and life is sweet? Matthew 10 and Mark 8 give us some serious warnings on this. Matthew 10, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father. 
Mark 8, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. This is why we need strong, bold, and zealous faith. Paul says he is convinced that Jesus is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now commentators would differ here on this actual verse because this verse can also read, he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. So it's either the gospel that is being entrusted, guarded by, or Paul's life. Personally, I would say it's the former, referring to the work and power of the gospel through Paul. As I said before, Paul never makes a plea for his own life. His main focus is that Christ would be exalted in his life or his death. And he's writing this letter to a young pastor and to us to give encouragement that no matter what happens to him or to us, it can never stifle the work of the gospel. The means that God uses in our lives, which for Paul was his imprisonment, are actually done to advance the gospel. No matter how dismal things may look, God is always working to glorify his name and to save sinners. Through the prophet Habakkuk, God says this, Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. That's money in the bank, friends. If Paul's imprisonment couldn't stop the advancement of the gospel, then we can go forth in boldness and confidence too. And just like some of us, our loved ones may not come to faith until later in life. They may go through terrible trials and afflictions. But God is doing a work in our day that we would not believe if told. All of this is supposed to grow us in trust and faith in the Lord. And all of this work, Paul says, God is able to guard, which also means to protect or keep. Paul is also giving us assurance that our faith our salvation and our final state is guarded and kept by the power of God. That's why it can never be lost. Now, there are some faithful brothers and sisters who would say or think that you can lose your faith. But the, I think the Bible's clear. The Bible says our inheritance is kept or guarded by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I know my sheep and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. We don't hold on to God in faith, God holds on to us. If it was by works, even a little bit, then yes, our faith could be lost. Because in part, it would be of us. And we're not strong enough to hold ourselves in the faith. But if it's all God, then it can never be lost. Now, some may tarnish it terribly, but it can never be lost. Now, that doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing, though. Once again, we see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humans working together. Paul not only says, is our salvation guarded by God and therefore secure? We're going to mention it in a minute, coming up in verse 14. He says, we must also guard the good deposit given to us. Some struggle with this dichotomy or paradox. Once saved, always saved, is in a sense true. But... The truth of that salvation will be manifested 
or proven in a life that is lived out to the glory of God till the end. Not two months later, two years later, maybe not even 20 years later, because there's people who have professed to be believers for a long time and walked away, which meant they were never saved. It's a lifelong journey, one that is marked by charity, service, good works, faithfulness, and righteous living. Now, to be clear, it's not perfection. We know that. You'll never hear that from this church. Nor does it mean that there can't be seasons in our life where we might do a little bit less. But if these seasons of life begin to define us, instead of the life we're called to live, we should probably take stock of our lives and examine and test our lives to see if we are in the faith, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, because the answer to that has eternal implications. So we want to be sure. Verse 13 and 14, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So the emphasis in the Greek here that Paul is giving Timothy is that he's giving him a command of vital importance to follow his teaching and be steadfast. As one commentator said, just as Paul's life was a living testimony of a godly life, so his teachings are to remain the benchmark for godly living and sound doctrine, not only for Timothy, but for us. Pastor Eric referenced this last week, and I'm not just bringing up Pastor Eric's all the time, so I get a good grade on my teaching tonight, although it might help. <laughs> he mentioned this. We need to not only grow in God's word, but we need godly examples to follow. When I came to faith 15 or 16 years ago, maybe a year or two after I was here, I joined the Atlantic City Rescue Mission, the team that went there once a month. I didn't know what to expect. Young Christian, trying to grow in my faith. And I would go there and I would watch these men and women that had been believers for some decades and just graciously in all humility serving the people at the Atlantic City Rescue Mission. And it touched my life greatly. You would never know coming on a Sunday that they were going. No one walked around saying, hey, you know, 25 years at the rescue mission, that's me. No one, would, there was no boasting. You, you go, wow, this is what a faithful, mature Christian life looks like. And I put myself under their wings in a sense to follow them and watch them and listen to them and glean from them. I said, wow, this is really amazing how they're living their lives. Month after month after month after month they would go. So wherever we are on the scale of faith, if we're on this end, as I said, we need to insert ourselves into groups where we can learn from more mature believers. If on this end, we need to set the example for others to follow. For Paul, he knew this started with the pastor, but is also true for all believers. Paul now brings in the a third person of the Trinity who's the Holy Spirit and says, through the Spirit, Timothy is to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to him. Paul knows that neither Timothy or we can do it on our own, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus also used the power of the Holy Spirit when he walked on this earth. He did that as an example for us. If he used his own divine power, we could say, well, of course, you never sinned, Jesus. You're God in flesh. And you used your own divine power. 
But the Bible says in more than one place, he used the power of the Holy Spirit as an example for us to follow. Deposit here means that which has been entrusted to Timothy's charge, which is the message of the gospel. Paul is saying to protect, keep an eye on, watch over yourself and your teaching. This is necessary because of the false teachers and teaching that will always seek to creep into the church. Because as 2 Corinthians 11 says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise that his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Because of that, the church needs to be on guard. This is why knowing God's word is so vital. When we know God's word, we can more easily identify error and false teaching. Going back to Ezekiel again in chapter 13, God says that these false teachers smear the wall with whitewash or plaster. What God is saying is they're, what they're saying, it might look good on the outside, but it's not the truth of God's word. This is why we need to be careful who and what we listen to outside of the preaching here. There are many preachers of God's word out there that are great speakers, charming, and can draw many in by their persuasive way of speaking. Everything we listen to, though, must be examined against God's word to see if it is true and not on the basis of the speaker, no matter how dynamic their way of preaching is. Joel Olstein would be one of those. Jehovah's Witnesses would be another. If they've ever knocked on your door, they could seem impressive with their boldness and Bible knowledge. But when pressed, they believe that Jesus is a created being, that he is not God in flesh, nor is he a part of the eternal trinity. They are a cult, and they will never enter the kingdom of God unless they repent and turn in truth. God will not be mocked, and his word is not to be scorned, trifled with, or changed to fit our personal narrative. Isaiah 5 says this, But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Leviticus 10 says, Among those of you who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. That's God speaking. And we can nod our heads in that. We should and say, that's right. But do we know the context of those words? Chapter 10 is when Aaron's sons offered incense contrary to the way God said to do it. And he took their lives. One way or another, this will be true for all people when they stand before him. Last set of verses. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This part of letter, when I was reading it over and studying, it almost seems like it should be at the end of the letter. Sometimes when uh, wordings like that, we can tend to skip over. But I think it has great importance for us. 
Paul is making a contrast between those who were not faithful to him in his mission and those that were. Nothing further is known about Phygelus and Hermogenes, but it seems to make sense that they were at least somewhat well-known and mentioning them by name, Paul might be calling them out and adding emphasis. So think if I was giving a, a lesson to a group of people and I said, Steve, all these people, they just turned and left me. You know who was in that group? Paul Chubb and Mike Festa. <laughs> I mean, we're getting some serious emphasis on, not that they would, but we're getting some serious emphasis on that, right? I think that's why Paul puts them in there. To say that those in Asia turned away from Paul might also mean that at one point they might have been following him. That is until his situation changed. The proof of this is the contrast with Onesephorus, who Paul says was not ashamed of his chains or imprisonment and refreshed or comforted him. How he did this, we don't know exactly. And it is possible that his family also was involved in this refreshment or comfort because Paul asked the Lord to grant mercy to his household also. I also think these verses are a picture of the church in general. We know that there are believers and unbelievers in the church. Many of those unbelievers can look the part, but when push comes to shove, they quickly abandon what they profess to believe. We see many examples of this in the Bible. In the book of John, we read where many of Jesus' disciples just up and left him because of his teaching. In John's first letter, he says, they went out from us, meaning from the church, but they were not of us. They were never truly believers. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about divisions in the church, and he says, there must be factions among the church so that those who are genuine will be recognized. In Greek, this word faction, it means dissension and false teaching. But it is also the same word that Peter uses when he talks about false teachers among believers who secretly bring in destructive heresies. So that word factions can mean dissension and heresies. <coughs> Part of this te false teaching some will bring into the church is that the Christian life is just a bed of roses and God only wants to do good to you and can only do good to you. We see that with prosperity teaching where God just, he's just mainly interested in your happiness and he wants you to do well. Yes, God can only do good for us. That's what the Bible says. That's a promise we can trust. But it's from a divine and heavenly perspective, not a human perspective. <clears throat> There's a sister here. She's not here tonight, but I was talking to her last week, and she's been faithful for decades, and she has trial after trial after trial after trial after trial, dot, 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 mostly because of her family. I saw her last week, and I just see her burdened, another trial. And I said, how long do you go without trials in your life? And she's, I think she's in her 70s and probably been a Christian for 30, 40 years, maybe more. She goes, usually about six months is the most time she gets where there's not a trial or affliction in her life because of the, her loved ones. So I joke with her. I usually joke with her and say, I have no problem when we get to heaven. If I'm waving to you up on that higher cloud, <laughs> because just the life that she goes through and it's, she's faithful 
that her and her husband are faithful all the time. So if like Paul, trial, affliction, calamity, heartaches, loss, and even death in our loved ones bring more glory to God, then he will do it. We are not the potter. He is. We are just the clay. And he has the right to do with us whatever is best for his glory. Do we recognize that strong, bold, zealous faith, trust in God, weaning from the world, sharper focus on the kingdom, growth in holiness, mortification, or putting to death of the flesh and therefore sin, and getting us back on track if we've strayed, are many times accomplished through the afflictions God sends us? If it is, then they are good. And I'm not saying affliction won't happen if we are kingdom-minded all or most of the time, because God may still send affliction to test us or for other reason he might have. But I would say this, turn to Jesus now with all we are. Seek him, pursue him, commit our whole lives to him before affliction comes. And if or when it does, the question is, will we worship and praise God with all we are regardless of our circumstances like Paul did? Or will we profess faith in Jesus only so long as things go well? Will we stay steadfast, strong, and committed to the Lord no matter what happens to us? Or will we depart like so many others have when troubles come? We must persevere to the end because no matter what course our lives take, God is doing a work in our day that we would not believe if told. 